This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector, investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. Our guest today is uh, someone who has a, a book out who's get, it's getting a lot of attention um, and I think is, is really helping to uh, uh, kind of stimulate a discussion about the Alamo. Um, our guest today is Chris Tomlinson, who's the business columnist uh, for the Houston Chronicle and is the co-author, along with uh, Jason Stanford and Brian Burrow, uh, of a book, uh, Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, uh, which was released three weeks ago and has gotten tremendous reviews and is, is, is getting a lot of attention. And I think that um, this is re- a really m- a much needed discussion. We know how... Uh, contentious the uh, and emotional the issue of the Alamo is for a lot of people but I think this is is really helping to kind of not only uh, help helping to re-examine the history of the battle but also how what the authors call the heroic Anglo myth uh, sort of uh, developed and uh, so we're uh, Chris we're really glad to have you as part of the podcast today thank you so much for joining us Oh no! It's my honor to be here. I've been uh, I've been a fan of pure politics ever since my columns started showing up in the Express News. <laughs> well, great. Well, we're really happy to have you. I was I was curious. I my understanding is that you're a, a fifth generation Texan. Is that right? Yes my uh, my family brought slaves to Texas in the 1840s and 1850s. Wow. So I, I'm curious. You know, for so many of us who grew up in Texas, um, it's really hard, I think, for a lot of us to even remember a time when we weren't aware of the Alamo or, you know, the myths surrounding it. Um, What was your your first experience or your first awareness uh, of the Alamo? Well, you know, I think like a lot of Anglo-Texans, I actually grew up with my grandfather claiming that one of our ancestors died at the Alamo. Um, there was a a guy named Tumlinson, Mm -hmm. uh, it's my last name spelled with a U instead of an O, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sometimes spelled with an O, uh, it is on the monument in front of the state Capitol. And and my grandfather just perpetuated this absolute lie that somehow we were related to this character. (laughs) But you know, when you're five, six years old, you want to believe that stuff. And so, I think I was inculcated with the uh, the heroic Anglo myth slash narrative slash lie uh, <laughs> ever since I was a little kid. So it's something I've always been aware of. Now you write in the book about the fact that um, you know the 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 Alamo the the myth the, this uh, the sort of romanticized and fictional version of the Alamo that, that we've all grown up with. I mean, this was something that really, uh, it, it was not something that was a, a big, uh, part of the culture for, for qu- quite a while. I know that when shortly after the battle happened, there were stories about it. And, um, my understanding f- from the book is that, that Sam Houston, you know, encouraged, um, you know, the, this, this 
sort of a romanticized, you know, version of the Alamo story at the time. Um, but it, it seemed as though many years passed where there was really not the, 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 the site itself was kind of neglected and there was really not that much interest in it. When did that start to change and why did that start to change? Well, you know, after the Civil War, you know, there were a lot of widows, uh, orphans, um, sisters who lost their brothers uh, to the war. I mean, there was just a lot of death. And there was this desire to remember the past. And so women started forming these remembrance groups, these historical societies, these uh, heritage societies. And in Texas, there was... In addition to the story of our Confederate dead, there was this added feature. There was the revolution that Texans fought. And so in this period of nostalgia and remembrance, that's when you had people like Adina de Zavala and, and Clara Driscoll right. really begin to take hold of the idea of, you know, we have this history and with just a little bit of a twist, we can make it feed this narrative of greatness and honor and, frankly, also justify some of the horrible things our ancestors did in the past. The, the, uh, the notion uh, that, um, you know, the, the, motiv the motivation for the participants in the, in the, in the Texas Revolution you know, that were really, it was really very much about land speculation. It was about preserving slavery. This was something that, um, I don't think was, was widely known by a lot of Texans. Uh, maybe, maybe they were in denial or maybe there just wasn't a lot of scholarship on it. I mean, I get the, the sense from the book and some of the, the interviews you all have done that, that it, there wasn't really a lot of serious scholarship being done, uh, on, on the battle or on the Alamo for, for a long time. Is that right? No, I mean, there was, there was no serious scholarship really until the 1960s. Um, and frankly, the serious scholarship came from, uh, from Latino, Hispanic, Tejano, Mexican American scholars who, um, recognized that, the Texas legislature had dictated how history was to be taught in Texas from the establishment of the first university, the University of Texas at Austin. Um, you know, they were regulating and dictating how history was to be taught. And, and for many conservatives today, it is still a question of teaching patriotism, not facts. It's to it's this idea that we have to build the, these myths to explain ourselves and that the reality is too dirty and messy to have to deal with. And, and you know, that shift in, did not really happen in Texas till the 1960s. And so with our book, we really rely on these professional historians and we stand on the shoulders of people who did the hard research that has been ignored largely by Texas society for the last 50 years. Chris, I, I'm wondering, do you think in this, this latest drama over the redevelopment of Alma Plaza, do you feel like ultimately the myth won out? Or is, is there still a is there still a, a sort of a push and pull going on with that whole process? You know, I, I you know my co-authors thought we could declare the redevelopment of Alamo Plaza over as soon as uh, Roberto Trevino said that he uh, he was going to uh, drop the whole thing because they didn't move the cenotaph. 
you know, I don't think the battle over the Alamo will ever end. Um, I think it's at this point, I think it's about raising money. And I think it's about what donors wish to be associated with. Um, I've been told that, uh, that our book actually set back the cause of teaching the whole history at the Alamo because it's mobilized uh, the right wing and, and the militias to come out and demand that only the, the legend be taught on the grounds. But, it, you know, it's still early days. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt from anyone who's ever been to the Alamo that something's got to be done with the plaza and with the compound. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's not going to be resolved anytime soon. And it's likely to be an iterative process that, as I said, may take years to resolve. That's, that's funny. The language you use, the, uh, the word legend, um, I'm wondering if the sort of the right wing forces you, you mentioned, do they acknowledge that, that it's a legend or, or do they, is part of their argument that this is actually the truth? Well, I think it's. It's all about framing, right? I mean, um, there are some aspects to the legend that are true. Um, people died at the Alamo. Uh, there were men named, you know, Travis, Bowie, and Crockett who fought at the Alamo. Uh, they, you know, Travis wrote these extraordinary letters mm-hmm. about liberty and freedom and and fighting to the death. And And, you know, it's... It's it, those things are true, you know, but they don't tell the whole truth. And I think that's what we're really arguing about. Um, I think the, the classic is that Jerry Patterson is one of our fiercest critics. Mm-hmm. And he likes to point to the Texas Declaration of Independence from Mexico that says, oh, well, you know, slavery is not listed. And then we will turn around and point at the Texas Constitution, the Republic of Texas Constitution, which was the most militant, extreme slavocracy ever established in human history. Mm -hmm. There was zero room for emancipation. There were no blacks, there were no freed blacks allowed in the nation of Texas by that constitution. So, you know, I think when you want to talk about the details, did they fight to the death? Clearly they did not. They ran away. They tried to escape. They were hunted down by the cavalry. Travis tried to surrender the night before Santa Ana attacked. So facts like that, yeah, the legend that uh, that Davy Crockett went down swinging his rifle, those are legends. But I think the serious, our serious critics aren't disputing those facts. What they're disputing is how we frame the story. And, um, and, and that's just part of considering history. Well, you kind of see that a little bit in, in, in how basically the governor and, and the state legislature have, have sort of touted sort of teaching patriotic education, quote unquote, to, to the, the state's youth. Um, I, I wonder, you know, is is there sort of grip on that, on you know what you're sort of deeming the legend? Is that is that getting sort of stronger at this point? Um, you know, he the the week that y'all's book launched, Abbott signed uh, the the bill that created sort of the 1836 project into into law. Do you think do you think that that grip is going to be sort of relinquished anytime soon? Do you think like there's any openness to, to what y'all are proposing or what y'all are sort of laying out here? 
I mean, we, in our book, include the latest scholarship. I mean, we, we don't claim to break any new ground. We're just saying, this is what the professionals say. This is the current assessment of the facts. Right. And I don't think the 1836 Project can reverse that. I think the 1836 Project, frankly, is, is a, a gra- last gasp or grasp at trying to maintain white supremacy in Texas. I mean, that's really what it's about, is that we're going to put white people on the top and we're going to make them the heroes and we're going to make uh, make the, the Mexicans the villains. And, and th- the truth is that no one below the age of 50 is ready to believe that kind of crap anymore. Yes. Excuse my language, but <laughs> it's not... Um, you know, and no amount of pamphlets distributed at the DMV is going to change that. And I don't think any serious seventh grade Texas history teacher is going to is going to fall into that trap. So, in a lot of ways, I think um, I call it the uh, the Disney's Crockett generation. Sure. Uh, you know, the coonskin cap generation. Um, if you did not, you know. If you did not wear a coonskin cap as a little kid, yeah. then you're probably not invested in this myth and you're ready to let it die. Yeah. And I, I was wondering what you think the, the real motivations are behind the, you know, the, the folks who are refusing to let go of some of these uh, more legendary aspects. Is it, is it nostalgia? Is it racism? I mean, why, why, why there was such resistance? I think it's nostalgia. I think it's identity. Um, you know, I my first book, Tomlinson Hill, was about my family's slaveholding past and how I grew up with this idea that I was descended from good slaveholders, um, that we had somehow treated our slaves right. And, you know, when I was, you know, in my early teens, I bought that. You know, I believed in it because I certainly wasn't being taught anything different mm-hmm. in uh, my public school history classes. Um, and that was part of my identity. And then when I got a little older and I had to shed that, I had to think about who I was differently. And I had to accept the fact that, um, in, that I, despite growing up poor, had all this enormous privilege as a white man that other people didn't have. And that can be a tough psychological shift to go from thinking, oh, I am the descendant of greatness and therefore I Mm -hmm. am great, Mm -hmm. to thinking, oh, wow, I am a descendant of criminals who gave me an unfair advantage growing up. And maybe I need to be honest with myself that I'm not as great as I think I am. Mm. And I think for a lot of Texans who tie their identity to their, to their, to the Texas revolt um, and to San Jacinto and the Alamo and to the civil war for that matter. um, If you, if you've got a $15 an hour warehouse job and the only thing that makes you feel good about yourself is your ancestry. And then you find out someone saying your ancestors really weren't that great. That, that's a hard thing to give up. And I think that that's a lot of what's going on. Do you think that's what's kind of prevented? Because you, you mentioned early in the book uh, that, you know, Texas has largely not had the reckoning with its own racist past uh, in the aftermath of 
the the killing of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, do you think that's that's part of why you, we haven't seen sort of that broader reckoning? I think so. I mean, you know, in the twenties, Texas was basically the center of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, it had hundred thousand members. My grandfather and my great grandfather were members. Um, it was, you know, this deeply racist state that was very proud to be part of the Confederacy. And then when the Klan collapsed in the late twenties, um, for a number of reasons that have nothing to do with altruism, um, Texas began to rebrand itself as a Western state. Mm-hmm. Um, it began to emphasize its revolution against Mexico, um, stop talking about being a slave state and start thinking of itself as a Western state, a state of cowboys and, and, and big open spaces and really thinking of itself more as the new West, more manifest destiny and less old South. And I think you see that in, you know, how Texans think of themselves today. Uh, they don't want to reckon with the civil war and uh, slavery and that sort of thing. They want to think of themselves as cowboys. Yeah, it, it's fascinating that you that you mentioned that because I remember years ago reading uh, Theodore White's book, The Making of the President, 1960. And of course, Lyndon Johnson had designs on the presidency that year. And there was a lot of uh, uh, discussion in the book about how he was trying to frame himself because, you know, getting the presidential nomination as a Southerner was was difficult at that time. So he was consciously trying to frame himself as the Western candidate uh, for, for, on the, uh, for the Democratic nomination. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, I think one of the most fascinating uh, parts of I, this, I guess this is true of every legend, is the way sort of pop culture uh, sort of uh, adapts it to, ser- to serve the, the interests of the time. And uh, the book gets into the fact that we had a governor in the early uh, 1900s, uh, Oscar Colquitt, who um, was was very interested in the in restoration of the Alamo. But his motivation was uh, to to use the Alamo legend uh, against Mexico, which had just gone through its revolution in 1910. Um, and then, you know, the, the book gets into uh, the John Wayne uh, film, the 1960 film, which was probably my introduction to the Alamo myth and how he was really uh, interested in telling the Alamo story as a way, as, as kind of a tool um, in, in, the, in, the, in the Cold War uh, fight, right? So this, is, this, is, this, this seems to be kind of a recurring theme uh, uh, as far as the, you know, the, the way the Alamo is, 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 is sort of used at different times to serve different political uh, goals, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's and it's consistently a symbol used by conservatives uh, in a kind of martyr culture, a kind of what um, a death cult way. You know, there are some things in life worth fighting to the death for. You know, you have to be willing to sacrifice your life, put it down on the line for for certain ideas. Um, and, you know, I think you see that. Um, throughout any invocation of the Alamo, you know, fight to the end, never give up. Um, and there's something honorable if you add that to the idea that you're somehow preserving life and liberty by sacrificing your own. 
And, and that's biblical, right? I mean, as this idea of sacrificing yourself so others may live. Um, and, you know, but sadly, it's also been used to justify all kinds of horrible things. Like Oscar Kulquit was behind uh, these horrible Texas Ranger massacres of Tejanos and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans along the border in the early part of the century. Um, you know, I think Walt Disney used it as, mm-hmm. as an anti-communist tool. Uh, John Wayne tried to defeat John F. Kennedy, tried to prevent his election yeah. by, by reinforcing amazing. these conservative values. Um, you know, George H. No, George H. Bush, um, I'm sorry, George W. Bush used it to rally the Ryder Cup golf team uh, when they were, uh, looked like they were going to lose the, uh, the cup. It's, it's, and sadly, I've seen it used in Iraq, uh, at Ford operating bases, oh where young soldiers call their uh, their fire station uh, or their fire their fire base um, the Alamo, um, it's 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 a it's a fascinating thing, and, and you can apply it to almost anything as long as you don't consider the truth about the story. I've been particularly fascinated with the, with the, the John Wayne film, and I, I wondered. Uh, I don't know when you first saw it or how recently you've, you 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 last saw it, but I was kind of wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it because there's so much. Uh, even though it was not a, a big hit film and, and was poorly reviewed at the time, as the book points out, it was one of those films in, in, that I re- remember in my childhood as just popping up on TV a lot. It was one of those epics, like The Great Escape, was another one I think that you saw on TV a lot, and I think it it. Uh, insinuated itself into the culture, even if it was not a, you know, a big box office hit. Um, and there's so many, uh, just inaccuracies in, in that, in that film. I, I wonder what, what your, your thoughts about it. I, you know, I, I don't know when you most recently saw it. Oh, I, we, uh, my co-authors and I uh, opened a bottle of wine and watched it together <laughs> when we were writing that chapter. Um, and of course we'd already done, the previous chapters about what really happened. And we were just amazed at, at the absolute uh, invention of so much of the story. Uh, this, you know, legend has it that uh, Wayne was uh, drunk at the Minger hotel for most of the writing of that script, <laughs> um, which makes sense uh, when you think about it. Uh, yeah. I, it's, you know, it's a lousy film. You know, it, yeah. it really is. I mean, it won it won an Oscar for its uh, for its music, but um, but it's 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 really just bad. <laughs> and so, uh, I'm always amazed at the number of people who tell me how much they loved it and how yeah. they rewatch it every year in February to remember the Alamo. And I'm like. How? How? I think well, I'd scratch my eyes out. Well, at least you had Frankie Avalon to provide some historical authenticity. I think that was that was a good thing. But- <laughs> Let's not forget the 2004 Alamo, where where yeah. Billy Bob Thornton tells tells the Mexican army he's a screamer before he gets uh, stabbed to death. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that any good? Was that movie any good? You know, we we watched that one too, and. Um, and that story's got a fascinating backstory, you know, because uh, a couple of years before that was greenlit, um, 
Unforgiven had come out. And it mm, was this right. really kind of dark, accurate depiction of how really violent and vicious and dishonorable the Old West was. And, um, and Ron Howard had, had originally planned to make a, uh, a dark, you know, accurate version of the Alamo. Uh, but then 9-11 hit and the, 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 the uh, studios demanded that he, he go back to the heroic Anglo narrative uh, because America wasn't ready for a dark version of the Alamo yet. Wow. And so the most, um, so while they strive for realism and my friend uh, Stephen Harrigan, who was out on that set helping them with their historical accuracy, including the fact that Crockett was captured mm -hmm. um, and was executed. He didn't die fighting. Um, it's also, you know, was kind of not as fun because it was accurate and it didn't do that well at the box, box office. And uh, Ron Howard ended up quitting because he didn't want to make another hero movie. Um, and so, yeah, I think it ended up being mediocre because it wasn't one or the other. They tried to have it both ways, huh? They tried to yeah. have it both ways. Sure. I remember being in the theater. I think my parents took me to see it opening weekend. And I think we were the only people in the theater. There might have been one or two other people. Uh, but, but I was, you, you mentioned, Chris, that, you know, people say the book kind of, you know, pushed back the, the, the cause of, of basically, you know, telling the full story. But I, I wonder, uh, when it comes to the to the books reporting on you know the the legitimacy of the Phil Collins artifacts, like how has that affected sort of the the shaping of of the museum at this point? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that you know the Alamo of you know the Alamo Trust and the General Land Office has been remarkably silent. Um, mm -hmm. I think the uh, the new director Kathy Rogers. Uh, answered a question saying that no, they will not display items that have not been verified as authentic. Uh, but that's the closest they've come to addressing the issue. Um, you know, George P. Bush, the land commissioner, recently claimed that instead of being worth only $15 million, the collection's actually worth 30. Um, there's no basis for that at wow. all. Hmm. Um, but since he doesn't answer questions from the press, we'll, we'll never be able to uh, actually interview him and find out because he just doesn't talk to people, um, right. except through YouTube, apparently. Um, so I would hope that donors out there who... Um, who are considering supplying some of the $200 million that museum's going to require, will ask those tough questions, uh, if not in public, in private before they write any checks. And, and what about poor Phil Collins? Is, have you gotten him on the horn yet? You know, uh, Phil sent us a very nice note declining to answer any questions. <laughs> um, he pointed out that his life was really busy at the moment. Uh, because he was uh, rehearsing with Genesis mm -hmm. uh, for a reunion tour that's supposed to start later this summer. Um, he also didn't mention that all the new items he's acquired, because he's still buying Alamo stuff, right? Oh, I mean, I he donated a bunch 
to the to the land office, but he is still buying stuff. And the stuff that he's been buying is just as questionable as the stuff he's already donated. <laughs> and um, but he can't he couldn't go in and check on it because his wife had taken over their mansion in Florida oh, and locked that's him right. out. Yeah. Uh, so he's had a lot of personal issues. Um, and so, no, he, he hasn't, he hasn't talked to us either. Uh, but I guess he, he got access to his house again. So and, and what, what side of the, the debate does, does he fall on the, the accurate side or the he inaccurate side? He has been very clever in that, um, he acknowledges that there is new scholarship that makes the story of the Alamo more interesting. And that's about as far as he's going to go. Well, one of the things that, uh, most fascinating parts of the book, I think was the, the fact that you all got into the, the, the damaging aspects of the, of the myth when it comes to education in Texas. And I, I taught Texas history for one year after I got out of college before I, I got into journalism and, and uh, that was a long time ago, but I, you know, I, 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 this was in the Rio Grande Valley and it was, you know, 90% Mexican American kids. And, uh, I just re remember, uh, just the 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 struggle in 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 telling that story uh with the textbook that we had and 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 the sort of perpetuation of the myth that was that was in that and you all get into the fact that um this has been a, a really hard thing for mexican american kids growing up having to take texas history in seventh grade and the way the story um has been framed um could you talk a little bit about that sure i mean the, what, what people don't understand is that there's a flip side to all these legends. If you tell a story where the Anglos are all the heroes, then there must be a villain, right? And on, and in traditionally, the villains have always been the Mexican Americans, the, the Tejanos. Um, and so when people are per talking about how proud they are of their past and of these legends and how we have to preserve them, they're not forget they're forgetting that they are oppressing they're, they're, it's cultural oppression. When you tell a community that your memories don't count, that your ancestors don't count, that only my ancestors are worth anything. Right. And so when we were talking to San Antonians, of, of Mexican descent, uh, whose families like to say the border crossed them, they didn't cross the border. Um, they told a story of being in seventh grade history class and for the first time in their lives made to feel like, to feel un-American, to feel like the foreigner, right. to feel like the outsider, that their ancestors killed Davy Crockett. Um, and I mean, Ruben Cordova, who's an art historian in San Antonio, he said, you know, it's our, it's the same as if, uh, you know, it's like the Jews are the Christ killers, you know, mm -hmm. the Mexican Americans are Davy Crockett killers. Um, and this caused, we were just amazed at, you know, every person we talked to told us the same story of being marginalized and made to feel different and having their little Anglo friends turn against them once they'd heard the Alamo legend. Um, it, it's just so hurtful and too many Anglos just don't even realize it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think the, the, the book that, that, um, that you all have written, I think will, 
will hopefully go a long way in, uh, in, uh, I know it's not an easy process because, uh, you know, legends, myths die hard, but I think this is a really positive step in, in helping to kind of, uh, correct, um, you know, the, the, the false stories that have been out there for a long time. Chris Tomlinson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on the success of the book and, and good luck with everything going forward. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. It's a great conversation. Thanks, Chris. 